Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Sing a Song of Sixpence by John Buchan. Uh, this is first published in a collection of short stories entitled The Runnegates Club, which was published in 1928. We're reading it out of uh, the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine publication, which uh, came out in April 1956. It's uh, interesting to see it out of context, because I think context matters, but it's designed to be read out of context, or at least... Uh, it's designed to be read individually as well as within a collection. This particular collection, um, the Renegades Club, is basically uh, John Buchan collecting all of his most famous characters and putting them all in the same universe and having them tell stories uh, around a supper table. And each character gets to tell a story. And... Uh, they're all kind of like John Buchan. <laughs> so you mean all the characters who do the narrating? Yes, all the characters are kind of like John Buchan. Um, aspects of him. He was a very interesting man, and uh, he had a very unique access to a lot of things that we normally, uh, we plebeian types normally don't have access to. And so I think that's a large appeal of his writing. Is just it's very accessible. Um, and then when he brings all these characters together and has them tell all sorts of stories, you get uh, sort of a cross-section of all of John Buchan's uh, fictions, which are mm, kind of all similar, but also uh, all worth reading. <laughs> At least the ones I've read. Well, good. Uh, Buchan, as I have learned, was uh, a lawyer, a diplomat, a writer. Um, he is the last position in life was as governor general of, of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story that we're talking about today, sing a song of sixpence has as its inner narrator, um, someone who was a lawyer and, uh, winds up in a crucial position in a diplomatic effort. So uh, I see what you mean, that uh, Buchan had interesting access to things that most people don't. And he gives us, in a, an easy way, access to those things. I say easy because the language is quite comfortable mm-hmm. to follow, at least it is for me. But I wouldn't want to give the impression that it is shallow. In fact, what I find makes... Buchan's writing most captivating is the the droll tone, and I'm guessing it's that tone that characterizes his narrators in the the several different stories of his that you have in mind. Mm-hmm. And they're fast paced, but they're kind of casual at the same time. And you sense that casuality in this story. I mean, there's there's guns being pulled out and you know threats of assassination and all sorts of high drama but it's played out uh comfortably <laughs> which is unusual in you know if if this was uh i don't know an action movie it would have to be 
it would have to be the tone would need to be changed quite a bit to to keep up with the modern sensibilities around it around this stuff yeah it sounds like this is a good time to give a, a sense of how the story is constructed and what gets put into it uh, the the story begins <clears throat> with a a scene setting um someone says that Edward Lytham's face had that sharp chiseling of the jaw and that compression of the lips, which seemed to follow upon high legal success. Uh, and it goes on. I, I, I won't read further at this point. Uh, so Lytham, or however his name is pronounced, L-E-I-T-H-E-N, uh, Lytham is uh, introduced. We get to understand a bit about him about his idea. There's a little discussion in this group of people who are together chatting with each other about whether or not you can find in London um, sort of everything from the world in the world. Is it the modern Baghdad, the crossroads of all civilizations, um, both the, the, the rising and the falling ones? And then we get a story that Lythan tells in order to, I suppose, demonstrate that, by golly, you can find anything in London. And then comes the story of him uh, having been, as a, a young lawyer, um, spending too much time at social events, uh, working hard, but also going out to eat often, uh, meaning at people's homes. Clearly, this is an upper-class kind of fellow. Uh, and uh, at one particular evening, uh, he was to have been meeting uh, a, a visiting South American uh, president. Uh, but that fellow calls up uh, and only an hour in advance and cries off, as they say. Uh, he says he can't come. Later, on his way home between going between the dinner and an intention to go out much later to a dance, um, He's going to go home to do some some good work for as a lawyer. He cuts through the park, sees a homeless man, thinks better of it, turns back and has only sixpence with him, but offers him the sixpence. The story is called Sing a Song of Sixpence. And um, he strikes up a bit of a conversation. Or actually, the, the homeless person strikes up a conversation with him. And to make a long story not that long a story. To make a good, fast story, as you said, <laughs> Jesse. Um, shorter, the Lythan offers the man to come back to his home and get out of his wet clothing and, and have a meal and, and spend the night, you know, indoors. The fellow asks him some questions, gets some answers, um, and then agrees, but says, I'll meet you at your address. Uh, when Lythan gets home, the fellow's already there. And it transpires that the fellow claims not to be homeless, but in fact is the new president of this South American country, having acceded to that position by a coup d'etat. Then we have all kinds of talk back and forth about uh, what he's doing there, uh, keep putting his country on a good footing. Um, in fact, he was educated in England and he recognized Lythan from the days when they were schoolmates uh, at school at the same time and were on opposing cricket teams. Uh, and then we get the story of how he happened, that is the president, to be in the park uh, looking like he was a a homeless man. It turns out that 
another six, not Pence, but six mm -hmm. assassins have been sent to get him, right? Because they don't like his politics. They work in pairs. And uh, in fact, two of them had already been uh, captured by the English police, drawn out by Pelham serving as his own bait. Um, two more were um, nabbed. Um, and we find out while uh, he's with uh, Lythen. And then the last two show up at the door. And in fact, there's uh, lots of interesting action. Manuel, um, who is clearly a South American, wants to just kill him. But Corbally, who is the most professional murderer and is an Irishman, um, actually strikes a deal with the fellow. Uh, Pelham says, look, I want a vacation. You want a vacation. Why don't we make a deal? You won't. I won't turn you in and you won't um, kill me for two months or until after the running of the Grand National, whichever is the shorter period. And they agree. <laughs> They're going to go off to go to the races together. Uh, having told the story, uh, Lythen ends with his uh, observations about the nature of what he has just seen. But we never get back to the introducer. So it is, in fact, a front framed story. Mm -hmm which has certain implications about our uh, reading procedures, or at least it seems that way to me. Mm -hmm. So, and it's told in a delightful way, which means we've got to look at some individual words to get, to get the sense of what that is. Um, does that strike you as the, a the, fair the, summary, Jesse? That's the plot. This is a very, very straightforward story. I think, I mean, other than the framing and, um, <laughs> and the, just the way it's told is so, so, um, light and brushy um there's a uh, way of what uh, that's how the game is played my dear boy right <laughs> this is a kind of um gent uh, he calls his assassins gentlemen right <laughs> when he's describing them um and uh, at least one of them the the irishman is a gentleman in a certain sense and they're playing fair <laughs> in this game of assassins and and coup d'etats it's it, it's a game um, and they they have rules that they follow. This man, our uh, our in, inner narrator, as you put it, he is um, a sort of an interloper in the game. But he he's a member of the kind of class that knows how the game is played, and he plays along. When he's handed two pistols, um, to <laughs> I I I was assuming they were to use as defense against the the two enemies that are coming up the stairs but no he's to hand them to them right this is yep. a um I, I, you know i didn't even notice uh, uh, and something i like that you did was that there were six assassins and the six pence and <laughs> and then thinking all the why does he have a pair of guns right is it one for each uh, it, so there's a a number of points where he can surprise us even though he's he's playing a kind of uh, game we've seen before in other um, spy stories. I guess that's almost what this is. Yeah, I think it is. It's certainly political intrigue. Mm -hmm. I like, I, I think there are stories where you want to know how they end. And I think this is one of those. But uh, the ones that 
reward return reading uh, that make us want to think more deeply about what's going on. Uh, don't put everything on the discovery of the end. There's something else going on. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I like so much about the story is the tone, yes. uh, a tone that it says something about the social class of Lytham, but also about his willingness to, to think that everybody with whom he is talking, which is not us, it's these other people at the club, um, that they understand. So for instance, uh, on a certain night in February, I was dining in Bryanston Square with the Natalies, as if we're supposed to know who the Natalies are. Molly Natalie was an old friend and used to fit me in as an unattached bachelor into her big dinners. She was a young hostess and full of ambition. Well, right, that already they're in a different world than mine. I don't invite people to my house because I want a social climb. I just, they're my friends. And one met an odd assortment of people at her house, mostly political, of course, but a sprinkling of arts and letters and any visiting lion that happened to be passing through. Molly was a very innocent lion hunter, but she had a partiality for the breed. <laughs> you know, it's lovely. You just take the metaphor, you push it a little further, and there's this lovely uh, sense, well, you know, we, we can tolerate Molly. She's just innocently ambitious and trying to get presumably Mr. Natley advanced in society. But the, the president calls and we find this. Actually, we don't know exactly yet. So, well, we, we find out about uh, Ramon Pelem, who had engineered a very pretty coup d'etat the year before. My God, a pretty coup d'etat. Mm -hmm. But he calls. Well, he had cried off on the telephone an er hour earlier and Molly was grievously disappointed. Her other guests bore the loss with more fortitude, for I expect they thought he was a brand of cigar. <laughs> and it was so lovely, you know, that, oh, I'll have a Ramon Pelham, you know, I'll have a Coronado. You know. So there is an irony, um, even though Lythen is part of this group, he is a bit removed. He, he He's observing these people and able to make a wry commentary on them which he shares presumably with his dinner companions, the people who are tra trading stories. But I'm not so sure. What I am sure of is Buchan is making sure that we can have a slight distance yes. from the goings on around these people. And when we're finally done with it, I think um, we're not just supposed to come away saying, well, wasn't that interesting? I think we're supposed to say much more, but I don't want to say much more till I give you a chance, Jesse. I um I, I like I like thinking about why he names characters, you know he was born uh, John Buchan, but he his taken name the name he took when he became a lord was Lord Tweedsmere. Uh, he puts on a the character puts on a tweed jacket in here, and um, the reason he named himself that is because he's from Scotland and there's a river called the uh, River Tweed. Um, and there's a also kind of clothing. Um, and interestingly, uh, Edward Lethen, or Lethen, however it's pronounced, um, is named after a river in Scotland, quite near. Uh, actually, it's a tributary to the river that he's um, <laughs> that he is uh, named after. And uh, if you pronounce it uh, the way I want to, which is uh, Lethen, it makes you in mind of another river, a famous river from mythology the river Lethe. So to uh, 
Lethin would be to do what the river Lethe does, and the word in Greek means oblivion, forgetfulness, or concealment, which is, uh, I think, another way of saying this is John Buchan, a true story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if the audience would know that, um, but uh, even if they don't, it's a fun sort of play that he's always playing with, and he's he's very... Um, He's very good at doing this concealment, the same kind of concealment that our president does in the park. You know, he's he he's later appears at the party with a uh, a gold star ribbon uh, on. Um, he's what's uh, I want to say Coronado, but that's not the guy. Bolivar. Right, the uh, gold bull. Right, so a South American um, liberator, right? And we we see what is happening in the story as proof of what we're told as is happening in London, right? Uh, so I want to read the uh, first page paragraph here. Lethen said that he was not ashamed of it, and he embarked on a eulogy of the metropolis, that is, London. In London, you met sooner or later everyone you had ever known. You could lay your hand on any knowledge you wanted. You could pull strings that controlled the innermost Sahara, and the topmost Pamirs, romance lay in wait for you at every street corner. It was a true city of the caliphs. And that's exactly what we're shown, right? You can find foreigners who are in control. You can find lawyers who are out for a stroll and just find themselves in an adventure. And then after the, you know, the drama takes place, they go on to a party. And have a dance, right? It's it's a kind of inner. Uh, he takes us in. He takes us into the society that he is most familiar with, and this is, I think, why John Buchan was such a popular writer. Is he's always taking us in, and um, the magazine itself classifies this as a suspense crime story. I I guess there are crimes happening in it, uh, but the main part is it is suspense. It's we kind of don't need to it's not that we need to know what happens in the end because what happens in the end of the story is you know he dies but not on this particular day right in the president yes dies. the president dies the one who right. you know he's playing a game and today he, he he wins but he'll lose eventually that that's part doesn't matter it's how the game is played is the important part and in this particular game um, it doesn't go as expected, but it goes very fun. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I think you're right, but I, I would like to 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 push it a little. Let's uh, just supplement that notion of fun. Um, in in my experience, when you have a a full framed narration, that is, you've got a first person narrator and then an inner story. The um, Whatever else is going on, the story is about the education of the outermost narrator. When you have a back frame story where, you know, like, and then I woke up, but you didn't know it was a dream. Mm -hmm. um, what we have is a story in which whatever else is going on, we need to think about what we have learned about the character. Oh, that's the kind of dream he had. And in a front-framed story, one that sets us up to have a story, but then we never return to the frame, 
In effect, what's going on is whatever else is happening. It's about the education of the reader Mm -hmm. because we're forced to recontextualize the story and come to understand what it means. Uh, And with that in mind, I'd like to read the end of the story as we get it. And remember, when it ends, um, we never go back to the frame. Right? We never have other people. The, the, the initial debate about whether or not London is a true city of caliphs, um, it, we never get back to that. We don't know if Lythen has persuaded people or not. Um, but so that this is clear for people who haven't read the story yet, um, there were six would-be assassins. And Corbally is the most professional, the Englishman. Manuel is the hot-headed teammate of Corbally, the one who wants to kill Pelham when they're in Lythen's rooms, but is prevented by Corbally from doing it. But of the two who get picked off the first at first by the police, uh, the least effective um, assassins, one of them is known as Alejandro the Scholar. Right. So, you know, it's, it's telling us something about not only the fact that uh, he's not Alexander the Great. He's Alejandro the Scholar. He's not a man of action. He is a little fellow, a little Spaniard who is mostly interested in books. Um, so the end of the story. Um, Lythen is introduced to um, Pelham with his full regalia, including the the cross, the gold star of Bolivar, at a party, a dance, which Molly Nantley also happens to be at. It's later that night. I so much wanted you two to meet, she says. I had hoped it would be at my dinner, but anyhow, I have managed it, (laughs) which of course is not true. I think she was a little surprised when the president took my hand in both of his. I saw Mr. Lythen play at Lord's, he said. I was 12th man for Harrow that year. It is delightful to make his acquaintance. I shall never forget this meeting. And of course, we know why he's really not going to forget the meeting. And so we're in on the secret, which makes us feel good. Mm -hmm. They got him next year. They were bound to for in that kind of business. You can have no sure protection. But he managed to set his country on its feet before he went down. No, it was neither Manuel nor Corbali, I think. He was Alejandro, the scholar. And that's the end. Now, I would like to ask, Jesse, because I, I, I'm not a big one on wanting to know the intention of the author, because, you know, authors can get it wrong. <laughs> they can intend something and screw it up, mm-hmm. or they cannot intend something and get it right. If, if authors could always do what they intended, no one would ever write a worse book than his last book. You know, each book would always be better. Right. And we know that's not true. Um, I'm not sure what, what Buchan was trying to do here, but I, here's what I'm thinking. You can't have a pretty little coup. No, you can't. You know, and and when they say when he says when Lythen says they got him next year, but what he means is he was killed, he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he says, well, in that kind of business, you know, there is something about Lythen's attitude which makes him instantly responsive to to Pelham. But Pelham, if we think about it, we know that there are assassins after him 
because he is he's not only performed a coup d'etat, but he is, in fact, a dictator. Mm-hmm. When, he, when he says, you know, I, I want these two months in England and then I won't have to worry when I'm back in my country because in my country, it's easier to set up protection. Here you are a free people. So Buchan is letting us know that while England may be a democracy, there is this other place. And that other place, at least during the time being reported in the story, is led by someone who is perfectly willing to use subterfuge and violence to achieve his ends. And that person is the one with whom Lythen feels a fellow spirit. There is so much in this story about class and social climbing and money and the operation of the law and the police who are the arm of the law. I can't help but think that if this is a meant, regardless of what else is going on, to be about the education of the reader, yep. we as Englishmen, I presume it was published originally in England, mm-hmm. um, we as English folk uh, in a popular you know, in a book meant for popular consumption. He writes easy language, as you said. We ordinary English folk are supposed to realize that there is something superficially charming but deeply anti-democratic in the social structure within which this apparently uh, brave and successful Englishman um, participates, which sends me back to the opening description of Lythen, right? He had, we're told, he had the sharp chiseling of the jaw and compression of the lips, which seemed to follow upon high legal success, meaning he was tough. Mm -hmm. He's a hard man. He's a hard man. Exactly. That's the phrase. But the next sentence says, also an overdose of German gas in 18 had given his skin an habitual pallor so that he looked not unhealthy, but notably urban. As a matter of fact, he was one of the hardest men I've ever known. But a chance observer might have guessed from his complexion that he rarely left the pavements. That's an interesting double phrase there. Mm hmm. Rarely left the pavements means he never goes out into the country. The very next sentence said Burmeister had come back from a month in the grass countries. Right? So he'd been out in, in nature. He never left the pavement. But there's something else. When you kick someone to the curb, right, you're knocking them off the pavement. Pavement is British for what we in America call sidewalk. Mm-hmm. He's never left the pavements. Other people had to move around him. And I don't think we realize that there's an implicit critique of Lythen in that description of him. He was there. He fought. He got gassed. But he survived and it made him harder and confirmed him in his role as someone who could stride the pavements and do what he wants. Um, it's, and yet we like him because yeah. of his, his irony. I think this is a story that that wants us to see, yes, we do accept this social structure. These are interesting and perhaps in some ways admirable, even brave people. 
But my God, underneath it all, they are willing to push and shove and 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 murder. You know, that butler, as he's leaving Natalie's house, mm-hmm. refers to the butler as my ally since childhood. How really can you think of him as an ally? OK, so the opposite of the Germans. He was never an ally. He was always a servant. Mm-hmm. Be honest. At least Alejandro, the scholar and Manuel, they're honest. You're, you're right. He he is a he is a seductor. Uh, John Buchan was a propagandist during World War One. Um, he didn't serve in the war as a soldier. He he served as a propagandist, but he was he was basically the guy who made it very sexy and attractive to be a member of the establishment, to be a part of the game, to be the one in control. And the seduction here is is perfect because. We don't mind uh, him housing and running and playing games with the police and these assassins and then going off to his party and pretending like everything is civilized, which it is in a certain sense, and it also completely isn't in another sense. But this is this is what's so ad- seductive about it is this is actually how it is, right? John Buchan was rewarded for his his services to government both secret and public in in his um writings by being given the governorship of canada indeed Latin, indeed the character ends the same way as bucken does it's quite interesting in a later story he uh comes to canada and uh has a hangs out i guess with a group of natives who are sick and he helps heal them and then he dies a satisfied man buchan when he came to canada there's a uh, a photo somewhere on the internet of him wearing a plains indian headdress and he had a particularly strong relationship with the native peoples of canada um as many uh native peoples have strong relationship with the with the monarchy because they see as their relationship of equals right each individual nation dealing with another nation in friendship and it it hides a sign a kind of cruelty behind all of this we're all in this together and notice that um london and i guess the the schools of england that educate the leaders of the world all work together to control the world. This is not a relationship of of friends as much as it is a relationship of power and and feudal kind of feudal power. And so when when it comes to um, this particular story, it's it's hiding something that is really horrible, but it does it in such a breezy and light and enjoyable way that it sucks you into. And, and makes you think that it's, oh, it's quite reasonable, because aren't we all civilized? And, and, and the reason that I, I said I don't hold much with trying to assert what the intent of the author is, is exactly that I am troubled by just what you say. Mm-hmm. It's clear that Buchan is supporting the establishment. It's clear in his life, as you say, Jesse, 
that he supported the establishment. And it's also clear that he understood what was going on well enough to turn a cynical or at least satirical eye toward it and to lay out enough of the facts that any attentive reader can see that that establishment has a fundamentally immoral core. Mm -hmm. What did Buck and the man really think and what did he want us to know? I think I think there is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.